Welcome to the Be Ruthless Show, where we have the conversations that other people don't. The conversations that other people won't. I'm your host, Sam Ruth, and I'm ready to make a lot of noise and disrupt things ruthlessly. Thanks for being here today. Now let's get to it. Welcome back to the Be Ruthless Show. I'm your host, Sam Ruth, and joining me today is Kid O'Malley, author of Balancing Act, Writing Through a Bipolar Life. She's a mental health advocate, public speaker, and former psychotherapist who lives with bipolar disorder. Her personal experience and clinical background inform her advocacy and enable her to help herself and guide others toward mental health recovery. Her memoir recounts her struggle with bipolar disorder, the two decades it took to receive a proper diagnosis, and how her journey gave her purpose. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Samantha. These are the conversations that people need to be having and are not. So uh, anyone who is so open and so real is such a big, big step in my book in this world. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's important. We're having a lot of progress, which is fantastic in this area. And even with more and more peers going and getting, uh, you know, like you're a clinician, so you know that there's a big movement in the peer support specialists who work with, you know, clinicians so that you have that bridge, that gap, um, which is great because some people with the serious mental illnesses don't feel comfortable you know, with clinicians. So if you have somebody to help bridge that gap until they are able to trust and enter into therapy or go to a psychiatrist, it's great. Even if it's not an extreme, right? I mean, going to the hospital, getting treated, meeting a stranger, having to tell your story and not knowing the response, because I hear a nightmare of things that's overwhelming. So having, being able to have someone with you that can just squeeze your hand, (laughs) give you a look, it's huge. So um, I I'm stuck on the 20 years it took to get a correct diagnosis. Yes. Let me, so let me tell you my story. My story is started when I was 18. Um, I was a biochem student at UCLA and I wanted to become a doctor And, uh, but I was severely depressed and suicidal. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, wish severe depression on anybody. It's a living hell. Um, And so I thought, you know, the world would be better off if the world would be better off without me. My family would be better off without me. You know, I thought it would be a, a benefit to my family if I was no longer around. And the pain was just so deep. So people have to understand when people are suicidal, um, it's not that they're selfish, it's just that they're thinking, it's the depression affects their thinking. So I, but at one point in time, I saw myself basically sort of was able to step back and observe what I was doing. And I saw that it was no longer just thoughts, but I actually was making a plan and had the means and, you know, was doing it. And I thought, oh, no, this time I'm actually going to do it. This is a bit, this is dangerous. This is crisis. So I called a friend and asked her to stay with me until I could get in to see a a psychotherapist that day. And I went to the resident assistant at the dorms and I explained what was going on. And I needed to see an excellent psychologist as soon as possible. And she got me in to see a really good cognitive behavioral therapist at UCLA that helped me 
stop those thoughts and rewrite them as you do in cognitive therapy. So I did that for a number of months um, and I continued in different psychotherapies. You know, I ended up quitting UCLA and going to community college and then Berkeley um, studying legal studies. And, and anyway, I had a career path. I was even a clinician in my twenties um, and I uh, treated severely emotionally disturbed adolescents, which is very stressful in residential treatment and day treatment until my depression at 30 got so severe, I couldn't get out of bed. And that was following a year of trauma where my grandmother died, a friend from high school died of AIDS. I lived in the Bay Area, you know, as a clinician in the Bay Area, a therapist in the Bay Area. And there was a lot of friends of mine were gay men who were HIV positive, And it was just very, very hard. And I had a client in day treatment, um, a 16 year old boy, who threatened to rape me. And I went for the phone. He disconnected the phone. And I, luckily I was able to get past him and get out, but he was six foot tall. You know, so it was pretty traumatic. And, um, and after that, I just, you know, I, like I said, I couldn't get out of bed. So my parents, I called my parents and said, I can't even get out of bed. I'm so depressed. And they said, why don't you um, try medication? So I went and um, to my internist, my regular doctor, and she gave me uh, an SSRI, the first one, Prozac. And then I had side effects. So she gave me a, a sedating um, antidepressant trazodone to take a, the edge off the side effects. And then, my, and then in talking to my parents on the phone, um, you know, because I needed that kind of somebody, some rationality because I knew my mind wasn't all there. They said, why don't you get a second opinion from a psychiatrist, you know, because I was, and so I went to a psychiatrist and unfortunately the psychiatrist took me off those medications, which probably were fine, you know, and put me on a tricyclic, which triggered mania. So I had a, a week of full-blown mania. I was thinking um, in, I had a racing thoughts going through my head simultaneously about in binary code, which is just like a bunch of zeros and ones racing through my head. And I'm not a computer, so I didn't know what they meant. <laughs> so, and then I thought I had racing thoughts about um, the Christian mystic saints, you know, so the like the saints. And then I had thoughts about chaos theory, which is physics and mathematics, which so anyway, so intellectually, I was fascinated. I knew I was psychotic you know, but I was fascinated by it. I was like, gee, if I could record these and see if I could decipher them, you know, I wonder if it makes any sense. So what, what happened was a friend of mine called the, my priest and my dad, and the priest came over right away. I was um, with a seminarian, a woman who uh, uh, I was going to an Episcopal church at that point. So it was a female seminarian who had bipolar and the priest and, um, and they were with me while I called the psychiatrist and he prescribed antipsychotics to just stop the mania, which it did. And, um, and then my dad came up um, and my mom ended up joining him to sort of help me, you know, you. Uh, recover. Yeah. And so I tried recovering. The psychiatrist ended up putting me back on the tricyclic at a low, you know, just and tried to stabilize me on that tricyclic, but I was not able to read. You know, the letters and the word would just fly apart. 
the words in a sentence would fly apart. I wasn't able to even read. So here I was this person who was highly educated who couldn't read. And I could I was falling asleep driving. My brain was just, it needed to recover from the from the psychotic break. Um, and so um, I ended up moving back in with my parents for a period of time, went to a different psychiatrist in Southern California. And the different psychiatrist in interviewing me asked, if you has anybody ever talked to you about lithium? And I said, no, but I go on lithium. If you think I'm bipolar, I understand I'm Hispanic, that's fine. He said, no, we've never had any history preceding this like that. So we think it's it was caused by the medication. Yeah. So I still was diagnosed depressed. Um, I did have behavior that could have been described as like cyclothymic or even bipolar two, um, maybe, maybe cyclothymic. I was very productive. I was a very high achiever. So there are a lot of bipolar high achievers out there. So I, uh, I um what I did at that point was I was on a for from the time then that was when I was 30 31 until I was 39 I continued in psychotherapy and taking medication for depression and then at 39 I started having um symptoms of euphoria and I felt that I was called by God to one church for spiritual direction and to another church for Bible study. And although the behavior was fine, there was nothing destructive about it. Um, and maybe God was even calling me to do those things because they were very they were positive things. The euphoric feeling I recognized as hypomania. And so I called the advice nurse on my um, insurance card and she said, go to the emergency room or see a psychiatrist today. So I got, went to see a doctor. I was put on an anti-seizure medication. I ended up seeing a psychiatrist who put me on, then put me on um, just for that time. She put me on a, an antipsychotic to make sure I didn't, you know, to treat the mania. And then, and then I did, I, I've been on a variety of medications, but I've been stable on a, an anti-seizure medication and low dose SSRI um, and diagnosed bipolar, you know, at that point. So the diagnosis of bipolar, though, what was very challenging about it was that here I was the same person I was when I had the diagnosis of depression. And I was a mom of an extremely active two-year-old. <laughs> and as soon as my diagnosis changed, I thought because of my internalized stigma, my thoughts about what bipolar was, which was part of my clin clinical background and working with people who had severe bipolar, kids with severe bipolar, I thought, oh no, um, I now have a progressive serious mental illness and um, I'm no longer safe as a mother to my child. And so I put my kid in daycare and went back to work in order to protect what in, in my mind in order to protect him. And so that was probably the most painful thing I ever had to overcome was my belief that I was not a good enough mom because I had bipolar disorder. 
There's so many layers that go into it. And no matter what, if you're listening, anxiety, depression, no matter what it is, we judge ourselves as much as or more than the world judges. So recognizing first and foremost, the fact that at 18 years old, you knew to make a call, get a friend, take these steps is so huge. And to anyone listening who doesn't know what to say or do, come sit with me. Like, I don't want to be alone right now. You don't have to have the words. You knew enough. And if you couldn't have communicated it, she would have probably still gone and involved an adult to help. So I'm so impressed that you did that and want to know what you say to those people out there who might not have that initial instinct. Right. I think that the first thing is I, I that I want people to know is in spite of everything, in spite of your thoughts and feelings that might be otherwise, I want you to know that you are loved and you are enough. Exactly as you are. As you are. And that you are worth getting that help, asking for help. You are worth it. And that in spite of whatever the mental illness, our mental illness might be telling us, that those people close to us do love us and do want to help us. In fact, before that crisis, I had told my friends that I was depressed and my friends had urged me to get help. And I'd gone to a psychotherapist who wasn't helpful to me. You dismissed my suicidality, which I thought was pretty serious. <laughs> so this was the second time, you know, and this time it was more serious. So I, I, I think that Luckily, I knew to reach out and ask for help. And I want everybody to know that, first of all, you are not alone. Other people have experienced it, that that those people close to you do love you. Um, and if you're in an abusive situation, then find somebody who if, if you go, if you reach out to somebody who isn't helpful or who dismisses it or whatever, go to somebody else. Just like I had to do first the psychotherapies not helpful, dismissed the severity of my my illness, my symptoms, my depression. So I went to somebody else, right? There's no rule book that tells you to do that. That's a feeling. And if you see someone and you walk out of your appointment questioning things or something feels off, I always say to trust that because this is for you. These people essentially work for you and if you are not getting what you need, someone else is a better fit somewhere. And we're not taught how important it is to trust that and listen to that, just that feeling because counseling, therapy, medication from the wrong person costs us. Right. Well, exactly. I mean, I became manic because I was prescribed the wrong medication. And then he put me back on that same medication for a number. You know what I mean? So my brain was just messed with for months you know because of that and so having you know coming to the decision and I remember telling him then okay my family and I decided I'm going to move back home and he actually had told me here I am I had been until I had this breakdown you know triggered by medication by, by going to him I was a 30 year old living in the San Francisco Bay Area who had put herself through grad school and worked through grad school and was working as a psychotherapist and living independently. And he called me an adolescent developmental. You know, that that was what was going on is that I was developmentally an adolescent. 
And that is just so insulting to tell someone. There are, you know. That's the hardest part of this job is the other people. There are amazing doctors out there. There are amazing therapists. There are. There also are not. <laughs> and right. those people, like, please don't let those people stop you from finding the ones who do match your needs. Right. Right. I did not need to hear that at that time. And it wasn't, it didn't respect all that I had achieved and done. Now, I want to tell you in counterpoint to that mess message that I received when I was in the midst of that crisis, when I moved in with my parents, I met, well, before I moved in with my parents, when I was in the midst of this crisis, my sister uh, brought a guy she was dating um, and over and to take me out to dinner, you know, because that was part of the self-care as I was having friends come and, and you know, love me. <laughs> <laughs> friends and family. And so I went out to dinner with them and um, he mentioned that he had four brothers. And I said, four brothers, are any of them available? So even in the midst of that, I still knew I wanted to get married and have children. Um, and that that was a goal. And I was kind of quick, quick, you know, the time, time was running down. I was 30. <laughs> so he connected me with one of his brothers. And when I moved in with my parents, my, he and his brother, my, well, I started to date his brother. And on one of our first dates, he said, oh, and that guy, that date that she, my sister was dating, she's now married to, <laughs> and they have three boys. And the brother, I'll tell you about the date. He is now my husband. We've been married 25 years. So my sister and I married brothers. Um, and so our kids are cousins and it's wonderful. I mean, they're cousins squared, you know what I mean? Right. They're cousins twice. So they share grandparents on both sides. So we, um, we were on a date and he said, Kit, you're the most independent woman I've ever met. And I laughed and I said, I'm living with my parents at 31 years old. Um, I'm working as a temporary file clerk. You know, I used to be a professional. <laughs> right, the late, the, the, our own judgments again. You know, and he said, no, really, you are the most independent woman I've ever met. And so he looked beyond my circumstances of the crisis and the illness, and he saw me for who I was, unlike the psychiatrist, right? So you want to find people like that, in your life, people who see you in a positive way, who respect your spirit, who you are, not people who judge you, right? So if you go to somebody and they judge you and make you feel bad about yourself, whether it be friends, family, whatever, then go, go to somebody and talk to somebody else. And all you need is one person, right? Your story is reminding me, we do have these expectations of ourselves. I'm now 49 years old and I, I moved six months ago because of the fires in Boulder, Colorado, I reloc. So I love where I am, but it was an unplanned move, which triggers my anxiety and everything. I don't know where I am. And so recently I called my family and said, hey, I just want you to know this is hard. I'm not okay. And they don't always hear, 
We have to say it again and let them know, but they are here for me unconditionally. If you, if it's not your family, someone is right. Whether it's your favorite teacher, I don't care. I don't care who. And if you don't have someone connecting with someone that will stand up and, and help you have that voice until you do. Yes. And actually I wanted to tell us a, a little story about that and then, and then go and give an idea, another resource for people. So first is the story. When I was 18 and depressed, I was so ashamed of it that I didn't tell my parents. My parents had no idea. And the people who I went to school with at UCLA had no idea. It was just my very closest friends, my circle of very closest friends who I knew would love me no matter what. But I did not know my parents would love me no matter what. Isn't that, that's just so sad. But when I was 30, they went out of their way to do anything possible to help me. And it became clear to me, you know, and I had been in the psychodynamic theory that kept, I was kept on being told I was abused by my parents. I was abused by my parents. I was abused by my parents, um, which made me sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm Irish, you know, I came from an alcoholic family. There's some issues there that I had to work through, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that I came from an abusive family Right. And, and we people, all have issues. Every we family. all have issues. Everybody <laughs> makes mistakes, right? <laughs> Everybody makes mistakes. Yes. My parents were not perfect. Yes. There were instances of emotional abuse, you know, because of alcoholism, you know, because of impulse control around that, right. you know, and saying things they shouldn't have said or, you know, whatever, being enmeshed in that family system, all that stuff. Yes. But that doesn't mean I, my parents also loved me and my sister deeply. We're very, we were very, prof we were successful professional women, successful parents, you know, loving wives. We have long-term relationships. We, you know, we, you know, we, and I, I mean, from the outside looking in, you can't tell. Well, yes. But what I'm saying also is that there's positive, it's like, it wasn't all negative. Right. Right. Do you know what I mean? Even the things that are that that are you know roles that you play in an alcoholic family system have positive aspects to it you learn skills and and it's hard to see it when you're going through it but i think we're given challenges and things to give us the skills we need exactly totally i totally agree that is actually my message because i went through and and when my parents were had dementia I could see how everything in my life made sense because I had been pre-med and then I was a legal assistant, you know, and then, and then psychotherapist. And then I went into that temp job ended up being a decade long career in commercial real estate. So I had all these, you know, when you're dealing with end of life issues, you're dealing with legal issues, you're dealing with dealing with their house, you know, real estate issues, you're dealing with you know, medical and psychological issues because their brains are causing behavioral problems, you know, because of the damage to their brains. And so when we were in um, case conferences, my sister would say, it's a, you know, you know, every, all the jargon, you know, because of my career. And I'm like, yeah, it's just like everything now makes sense that I've been through. And those high achieve, I'm high achieving anxiety. No yeah. one really understood because I physically presented by doing another thing to calm my mind. <laughs> so I just looked successful. Right. And it is more of a burden on us to let people know it's invisible for everyone. 
But right. when you were unable to get out of bed, people knew you couldn't get out of bed. You weren't going right. places. When we're functioning, we do have to let people know because they really do not understand how we can be internally struggling so much and externally performing so well. Right, right, right. I mean, I've been told I don't look like somebody with bipolar disorder. I'm like, well, it's an invisible disability. You can't see it. I could describe to you what my thought process is. And then you go, oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, yeah, it is. And um, yeah, and actually also my background in working as a psychotherapist ended up helping me parent my son. Because my son, as it turned out, because my husband and I brought like different genetic things to the table. So he had, you know, this royal storm of <laughs> mental health and, and biological issues. You know, he is a migraineur and migraines often are connected to anxiety and depression because it's so, it was, a, he'd have really debilitating migraines. Um, and they started off as gastrointestinal migraines when he was a toddler. So we didn't know what they were. It was my sister who observed that anytime he was overstimulated, he would start throwing up. And so that's, you know, it's like, but it didn't, you know, so it, it took a while to figure things out. My sister helped in observing that. Um, and then how did you uh, flip that? I'm not a good mother script into this is going to make me an even better mother. I have so many powers because of this. I think it was just, I think in part is because I, not only would we did we do therapy with our son, right, as a family when he was very young, um, and and then turned to medication and did therapy with a psychiatrist, you know, um, or you know, we had a, I made sure he got the very best care possible when he was young. So you're seeing you see Irvine professors, you know right. what I mean? And you notice it, you noticed it before someone without your lived experience would have. Well, actually. With him, I, I did notice that there were problems, but with him and when he was, when I put him in daycare, daycare had us um, a meet with us and they handed us a brochure for children with behavioral problems. And I think, I don't think my, un, my husband understood this, what that meant, you know, how severe it was. He may have thought, oh, boys are boys, will be boys. And I'm like, no, I've been on the other side of this table. Right. This means your kid has some problems and needs help. That, but you might not have known that had you not. I lived would not have known that if I had been on the other side of the right? table. So if that I gave known. you amazing parenting skills. Yeah. Others suffer. I had anxiety. No one would have ever known. I, as a child, therapy it would have helped me so much. But I didn't have a. I didn't know what was happening to me to say it. Right. Kids can't put it into words, but you understood, even if he can't put it into words, he's telling us something. Right. That his behavior is communicating with yes. us. Correct. Right. Right. And so he was in therapy at four years old. And then he, uh, his behavior got so out of control one day at, at home, he was hitting me with a broomstick and chasing me around that I locked myself in, the, in my master bedroom and I called his psychologist and I said, I can't do it anymore. And actually at that point, his psychologist became my psychologist because his psychologist was better than mine, that mine had been, you know what I mean? That my previous one, I was like, oh, I chose a better psychologist for him. I think I'm going to. That's interesting. 
go to his, right. you know, that I did so much you did, right? I did so much research for <laughs> him. Why didn't I do that research for me? Mm -hmm. So, um, and so I called her up and I was just bawling. I was in tears. And she said, and I said, can, can I return him? Is there a return policy? And she said, no, you can't return him. And she said, I will get you in to see an excellent psychiatrist tomorrow. And that was the professor at UC Irvine. And so the following day we did psychiatry and she ended up stop seeing him because he kind of went mom, my son in, in her therapy. And he started to do the work mostly of kind of doing some acting out. And then, and then I like say, stop it. Or I give him a certain, you know, he can twirl around the, the chair this much, but not beyond that much. You know what I mean? I give him a, a little range. So, so that we were doing family therapy and in the, with the psychiatrist and he was getting medication um, and he ended up being diagnosed. Well, first he was diagnosed with intermittent impulse control disorder, but that was later changed to ADHD. And then he had the migraines, anxiety and depression. So, so, um, so yeah, he was a challenging kid to parent because when the medication for ADHD wears off, then they start acting out in the evening. And they don't know it's because the medications wear, yeah, right? Yeah, so and it's not like the kid wants to be acting out. Right. And my husband would be saying, why is he doing this? And I said, it's not a why. He's not doing it on purpose. It's, he can't control it. He does not want to be behaving this way. He doesn't want to be out of control. Um, and so, um, and he, uh, anyway, we we got through it. It was really hard. He missed a lot of school because of the migraines. And then he had social anxiety. So then he would have the migraines, miss the school. I bring him home to schoolwork. He'd do the schoolwork. He was he's brilliant. So he would had still got all A's. So you'd have him, I'd you know, into the first one night he'd be getting an award for straight A's. And the next day we'd be in the principal's office for too many absences. Not everyone is already connected to a psychologist to go run to their room and call. Not everyone is connected to great care at UC Irvine, right? So to right. anyone listening, the newest and best, my, I, I do not work for them, but I'm promising I always share 988 because you can call yes. 988 from anywhere and it is licensed, trained, qualified professionals who will not let you hang up until you have what you need, whether that's the person the appointment. Um, so even if you don't know what to do or who to call and you're that mom wanting to run to the room and call someone, 988 is a start if you don't know anywhere else. Totally. I totally agree. 988 is a fabulous resource. You know, you don't have to remember the old long numbers. It's right. 988. <laughs> and it's not only, you don't have to be in a massive, it is not suicidal thoughts only, right? right. You can call and say, anything, I'm, frustrated. I can't find the right counselor in my area. Help. And they are more equipped and have more resources than you do to look on your own. It's overwhelming when you're struggling and people think Google is so simple when you're already dealing with too much. That's right. That's overwhelming. So we get it. It's 24 hours a day licensed and they will connect you with what you need. So that's you certainly can look up people in your area as well, but the quickest, easiest route is 988. And I think that's right. the future. 
Right. That's, I totally agree with you. And I'm also a volunteer for NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and they offer great support groups, both for family members of people with mental health challenges and for those of us who live with mental health challenges. And there's the DB, DBSA, the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. There's so, everything. NAMI has everything and but, it's NAMI.org. And you yes. will find not only is there NAMI Colorado, there's NAMI Denver, NAMI yes. Boulder. So they will connect you. Yes. So they're a great resource. They're not, you know, professionals. They're peers. They're people with lived experience, whether it be as a family member or as somebody who has a mental health condition themselves. So but it's it's good for that peer support. And they have their programs that are very you know, well-developed in terms of content in addition. And to just to be clear, because I talk, they bring in trained professionals to do all sorts of things. Even if the person you connect with might not be, they certainly are affiliated and connected and run trainings and workshops and bring people in to give whatever support, whether it's depression, loss and grief, what do I do? Alcoholics Anonymous, you name it. They, they are connected with trained staff. I guess it depends where you are. <laughs> I is that interesting? That's good to know. Yeah, it's it's I they're they do um like their crisis line will do resource and referral just like the 988 will do. So we do have resource and referral. Um but locally we do we do the classes which are trained people trained by NAMI to do the classes like family to family and peer to peer. The support groups and then we have other programs so in terms of the 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 i think how large your nami affiliate is can depend on see i when i worked in orange county california there's a larger affiliate can offer more things when you're in a more sure. rural affiliate like i am now i'm in nami central oregon we are very uh you know we're you, know, you just when you're in a rural community you don't have as many volunteers yeah, I just want people to know that you they can offer still get lots. the answers. That you yes. still, it's a good resource to turn to. But, oh, without a doubt. If you are uncertain. I yeah, and and nami.org is huge, you know, so definitely, definitely, definitely. So, what other things do you think people need to know? There are so many people walking around struggling without support and they're not comfortable opening up or sharing about it because of the stigmas in this world. Um well, I guess I would reiterate that the sort of the you're you're not alone message. And I know people say it all the time, but it is so important because when you're in the midst of that, you think it's just you. You, you don't realize that there's other people who've been there and know um, and that you are worthy and loved, you know, that we all are and that you have a purpose. And um, I think that through my mental health recovery um journey, which is what I learned in my peer-to-peer class at NAMI, where they are taught how to, you know, they teach in, they teach in family to family and peer-to-peer. I learned about mental health recovery. And when you get to, and I'm, I've found purpose in, in doing mental health advocacy, um, and sharing my story and, uh, and being involved in the different programs with, with NAMI. Yeah, it's so we see I for so long, I thought anxiety was my weakness. It was my limitation. It was a negative thing. I had to fix it. Right. And even in my years of therapy, the mentality somewhere was it fix it. Something's wrong with you. It's broke. And once I shifted that to 
this is what makes me so capable of helping others because I understand in a way others don't when you can let go of that self-judgment and recognize that this is a gift. It The world doesn't see it that way, but when you can, then there is a way that you can give back and help others and find them. Even if, yes. it's, if it's not in person, there are Facebook groups, there are online communities, and I really encourage everyone to find your people um, as hard as it takes, as many times as it takes to find them, because once you have them, Right. Then, then you don't ever have to explain. Then it's a phone call with no words necessary. Right. I agree. I agree. And you're right. Reframing your experiences, rewriting them, reframing them, taking what you thought was a negative and reframing it and finding the positive in it. That is, I agree. That's so powerful. So powerful. How can people find your book and connect with you? Well, it's um, there. I know you're going to share a link. But I also on my website, kidomalley.com and kits with two T's. Um, you just put Kid O'Malley in Google and you'll find me. Um, and the book's for sale on Amazon and it's Balancing Act, Riding Through a Bipolar Life. And it grew from my blog. Um, so it's a lot of short pieces that are poetic or short prose. And it's uh, prefaced by uh, my mental health journey, you know, in a narrative form. And it's available now. You can get it on Amazon. Is it helpful if you're living with bipolar disorder? If you're living with someone living with that, what type of? I would say both. I both. would say it's helpful for both because you can get an understanding of the thought process of somebody who lives with bipolar disorder. Thank you so much for being so open and sharing your story. There need to be more of us out here. Any, any last thoughts for everyone listening? Um, just, uh, take care of yourself, you know, love yourself. Uh, you know, I think that my, my, uh, acceptance of my, my diagnosis rather than my self stigma, you know, overcoming that self stigma and coming to acceptance, just as you did with, with anxiety is spiritual in a sense, because it involves self love. So, you know, just, just, just love yourself. I love how you say it makes you beautiful. I can't see the top of that. Oh, so what makes you different makes you beautiful. What makes right. you different makes you beautiful. I totally agree with what makes you different makes you beautiful without and a doubt. Everyone listening live, I know it is day before Thanksgiving. People are struggling. If you need someone to talk to, reach out anytime. Call 988 sam at samantharuth.com. Don't struggle through a stressful time in silence or alone. Uh, Team Ruthless has a holiday get together on every holiday. You can join us tomorrow on Thanksgiving. If you're listening to a replay and you're struggling, you can still reach out. We have something going on all the time and don't want anyone to struggle alone. Thank you again so much, Kit. Reach out with Kit, get her book. The links are all in the show notes. And until next time, everyone, happy Thanksgiving and always be ruthless. Thanks so much for listening today. Your support means everything to me, truly. If this podcast resonates with you, please do me a favor and join in the Ruthless Movement by making some noise and doing one of these four things. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Tell a friend so we can break stigmas even faster. Leave a review so people can see what you think of the show. And last, if you want to learn more about me and be a part of the Grief Hub community, please head on over to the Facebook group. We'd love to have you. 
Thanks again for spending your time with us and see you next week.